welcome to the show. My name is Jay or John Spooner and this is the second episode in my attempt to honour and preserve the memory of Unlimited Theatre, an oral history of the company, how we formed, what we did, how we did it. This episode is a conversation with my co-founder and dear friend Paul Warwick. Paul was Unlimited's founding artistic director and the first of the original founders to leave the company, but not before he'd led us through the creation of some of our formative shows and projects, including Static, which won us our first Fringe First Award at the Edinburgh Festival in the year 2000. The year 2000. Yeah. Back in the olden days when Beyonce was still just one of Destiny's child. The olden days when, when we only had one desktop computer in the Unlimited office, a very cold unit in the old Airstreet workshops behind Leeds City Station. One desktop computer that the six of us shared and had to book a time slot on if we wanted to use it via the piece of A4 paper that was sellotaped on the desk next to it. The olden days when Paul walked into that office one day and in all sincerity asked, has the email postman been yet? thinking that, like paper post, email only came once a day. The olden days, when Claire made me dress up that one time as a penis to promote sexual health and well-being. But that's for another episode. In this episode, I have a lovely, free-ranging chat with Paul about how he remembers Unlimited coming into being, how we made our first devised show, No Brave World, how we were ahead of our time, in our opinion, combining SMS with live performance, why he left the company in 2001, and his advice for anyone setting up a company now. Welcome to the show. I'm glad you could make it. <laughs> it's a bit weird, isn't it? We've never done this before, right? We've never done something where we've recorded each other having it. We've never done that. I think we've also probably... I don't think we've ever really had a conversation about the, the history of... <laughs> Unlimited and our time together. I don't think we've ever really. Which is extraordinary, really. Given yeah. How that... long was it? Like 30 years? Is it 30 years? 25 years? Well, okay. So I suppose my first question to you is who are you and how do we know each other? <laughs> so I am Paul Warwick and I was one of the founding members of Unlimited. And now you are? Currently, I'm the co artistic director of. China Plate, which is a producing company based in London and Birmingham and working all over the place, wherever they'll have us. I love that. We've all got those lines, haven't we? Yeah. yeah. Hello, I am. <laughs> that's why, yeah, that's my little thing. Do you, so we were just talking, it's a long time and we've never had this conversation, which I don't think I'd actually consciously thought about, which is wild, really, because we've known each other a long time. And we've done a lot of stuff together, and it's not like we—I mean, we see each other. We spoke. We speak a lot, right? And we've done lots of things together. Do you remember? Do you remember meeting me? Yes, I—I uh, I think I first met you when you were doing Torch Song Trilogy. It's the first time I remember you. First time you, which was Claire's wearing show. a dress. Yeah, <laughs> I think so. I think that's the first time I met you properly see that I have a really vivid memory 
of meeting, and I don't know if this is real or not. I don't know <laughs> if I've just sort of put this in my brain. I have a really vivid memory of arriving at Leeds University in my first week, and um, I wanted to do the English and Theatre Studies course, but I didn't have the grades to do it. I got on the English course instead. And I wanted to make contact with the workshop theatre. And I remember going along in Freshers Week. And I think I remember Thorpe wearing um, a leather jacket. He had lots of hair, mm-hmm. very grungy. I think I remember Claire looking Basically, you all looked really cool. Claire was always the coolest. Yeah, like when I... Claire was the first person I met in Leeds when I went up for... When I arrived on my first day, which I think would have been the year before you got there, yeah, right? Yeah, because I took a year out. And I remember going over to the... Finding the workshop theatre, which was quite a weird and difficult thing to find on the campus because it's a tiny little church in the middle of nowhere. Well, in the middle of a massive campus of big, big 60s architecture. And um, yeah, Claire was there. And at the time she was wearing these really cool pink trousers, Mm. like kind of, I don't know, if you can have such things, pink tweed. They were like pink tweed trousers, a leather jacket that I subsequently found she'd stolen from her sister. Everyone had leather jackets. I remember you wearing a leather jacket. I was wearing a leather jacket. Um, and, And Claire at that time, when I first met her, had this extremely short bleached hair. Mm. which later on was a hairstyle that I went for. But at the time it was Claire. And I just remember thinking, oh my God, she's really cool. And I chatted to her. She was from London. I think she'd done a year out. I'd been milling around in Europe in my year, but Claire had done like an art foundation course. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So she was like an artist. She was super cool. And I, I, I'd come up from the back of Beyond in Essex and I was like, this is why I'm here. Because that was the thing for me, like going to university, I'm the, I was the first person and one of still only a tiny number of people in my family to have gone to university. And I, I say, like it totally opened my eyes to a different world. Like I wasn't from a particularly cultural background. I'd never eaten pasta till I went to Leeds. So like- I don't I, think any of us had, it was because we're old. It, we're old, yeah. But so I met Claire and there was this really cool woman with this funky outfit this bleached hair she'd been to art college and I was like this is why I'm here yeah so Claire was the first person I met she was achingly cool she still is cool but she was very cool but that's then. how I remember you I remember the three of you together and I, maybe Lou was there as well anyway I remember you all wearing leather jackets I remember maybe I've just imposed this because you went through that period of having the peroxide blonde hair as well but um you're all in the sunshine outside the workshop theater September and I hard agree with you same for me coming to Leeds was oh my god here are my people I finally met people and I'm experiencing things that make sense of my life that nothing had before then yeah. because of how and where I'd grown up which wasn't hard it was just like you say culturally it was very different to growing up in the southeast in the 80s right which was a very I don't know weird materialistic weird kind of violent well it was it was just it was just it was violent it was it was it was just very odd like that whole I always think about I was six years old when Margaret Thatcher came to power and when we all met at university, basically that government was still in power and would be until 1997 with various different leaders. And there was just a, there was a sense that there was this, that was what the South East was about. And, you know, I, 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 my family originally from the North East, so I understood that the 80s had been very different in different parts of the country. But the bit of the country that I'd grown up in had got, my family had got 
better off in the 80s. We'd mm-hmm. suddenly had holidays and video recorders and all that kind of stuff. But then some, something about that kind of post-industrial... Because Leeds is now this very bougie Knightsbridge of the North place, right? But it really wasn't in the early 90s. It was... It was post-industrial and rough and the whole thing looked like a Smith's album cover, right? So we spent all that time, we met at Leeds University, spent three years there making work and all that sort of stuff. So do you think that time in the sunshine when we were the (laughs) golden boys and girls, was that before Torch Song Trilogy? Yeah, I think it was in my freshers week. Right. I mean, like I say, I might have just made it up. But I'm pretty sure I have. I don't remember that, but like, there's going to be no, I can't memories. Be, I can't gonna... believe you don't remember me. No. I remember you in this glorious sunshine. Yeah, no, I really remember you. I really remember you in Torch Song Trilogy, and I really remember that being a really amazing production. I remember Claire doing a great job of directing it. I remember she had the live band on stage. Yeah, with with like, I don't know if Simon was in it. Maybe yeah, he Simon was. was. Simon and and Dan, Dan and Brown. all those people that we hung out with for years and years and years. All those musicians that we met, mm. and we did it. We did it. Traverse in a church, <laughs> or maybe well, we rehearsed no, in, in the ra- church, and then we did it in the Raven, and did it in the Raven. But it was so cool, and I just, yeah, I think that was really. Uh, so that is a that is a strong memory. But we could have met. We probably did meet before that, I guess. <laughs> but I suppose we're, we're not here to talk about, you know, the university years. How do you remember Unlimited starting? I'm really interested in story, storytelling, memories, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. Well, yes, we're not here to talk about university but like the workshop theatre is a really important part of how Unlimited started Mm. I think so Chris, Claire, Lou and me were all on that course and I think it was a really big deal for all of us but certainly for me it was completely transformative of my like when I came out of that course I sounded different I had a different worldview it was a it was such a profound experience for me and I don't know if that course or indeed any university courses are like that anymore. And this is probably slightly rose tinted, but it felt like they just gave us a theatre for three years, told us to get on with it. And we just made stuff. And then they gave us a degree at the end of it. That's literally what happened, I think. <laughs> yeah. Like we could rehearse in one of three theatres at any time that we wanted. We had yeah. access. And we would do it at like two, three in the morning sometimes. And then I remember me and Thorpey finishing rehearsals at like two in the morning and literally taking down black theatre curtains and wrapping ourselves in them and sleeping on the stage in those and then getting up and doing it all again the next day, which I know just sounds ridiculous, but it, it was what we were doing. And that, so in a way, that, that was such an amazing experience that I think we just thought we wanted that to carry on. Mm. So in some ways, we came together not because we had anything... I mean, we did have stuff to say, but it felt like one of the really driving things was we'd met this amazing group of people and we wanted to carry on making work together and we wanted to be a theatre company so that's what we did so there's that there's that we also there were there were also other sort of moments where you could draw the line like there was after we'd been at uni we graduated it was pretty it's always tough isn't it It was pretty tough in those days it was pre-national lottery so there was literally no money Mm. There was no, you know, no project grant funding process really to speak of. And I remember we did, the university had been offered this gig in Murcia and so we were... this is, t- I think, the origin story. I think this is where... This might be it, yeah. And they'd said, like, why don't you guys do it? Because we can't take a load of students there. So why don't you guys make a show and go to... I can't remember if it was Murcia or Alicante. It was maybe both. And we made a terrible show, which... <laughs> 
the first 20 minutes of which were us wrapped in these enormous linen cocoons, which we, we unrolled from uh, really slowly over about 20 minutes. I thought that was very profound. But, you know, suddenly there we were travelling to Europe, doing shows in a European theatre festival. And it was just someone had said, why don't you do this? And we were like, yeah, we can do that. So we did it. So that might have been the first Unlimited show. I think it was the first. That's what I remember. And it was because I was still studying because you were all a year ahead of me because I'd taken this year out. And I was so jealous that you were going to Spain to do this show. Do you remember who it was? It was called Babel. Was it? Yeah. yeah, yeah, it was called Babel. Do you remember who it was that went out there? I think it was me and Chris. It was probably Liz and Lou. Dave Wolf might have been there. I think Dave Wolf was there. I think there was some. Did Claire not go? I think Claire went. We've got. I've got pictures of it, but the pictures are all of people wrapped in those yeah, muslin yeah. cocoons. I wore a leather jacket in that show as well. A really awful. <laughs> For three years, I, I all you wore was a leather jacket. I wore a lot of leather. I had leather trousers at one point as well. You looked good in the leather trousers. Um, yeah, so there's that, that may have been the first Unlimited show, but we we all had other... Because there was no way of making a living. So I don't I was, think it was called... Un, was it? Were you called Unlimited then? I don't know. Maybe. Maybe, maybe we were. Know, I really remember that trip because none of us had ever had tapas before. <laughs> and we went to a restaurant. They were lovely. The people who ran the festival were really lovely. And I think it was the one of the stage managers or the production manager of the festival. His family ran a really amazing tapas restaurant. <laughs> and uh, we, we, none of us had ever had tapas. And so they put all these plates of food in front of us. And because we were British, I just remember me and Thorpe and everyone else just like shoveling all this mountains of tapas onto our plates to make a dinner right we wanted like that's my dinner and all these spanish people looking at us in absolute horror like what are you doing what's going on here that's my sort of memory of that and the show being being a bit um maybe nikki was there oh i think nikki was in that nikki smith was in that show i think i think she may have been in that show i'm certain i know that i'm certain that you thorpey lou and liz and dave wolf went i don't know about nikki smith i have a feeling i I have a feeling that nikki was involved in that show but we were all doing other stuff because there was no funding so there was no real way of making a living in that time what would now be called the arts council was then called yorkshire and humberside arts they had a tiny amount of money it all went to the west yorkshire playhouse sheffield crucible there was just still does there was just no well there was no money and there was no way of applying for something like grants for the arts or national lottery project grants as it is now Um, that came a bit later so we all had other shit to do so i was promoting nightclubs lou was working in his shop and running a weird lou was running this weird marketing agency thorpe i don't know what thorpe was doing (laughs) thorpe was working in the bar thorpe was working a bar job what was liz doing liz might have been yeah liz was working so we all had other jobs I think that got a bit frustrating. But you were all living together as well, because I was in my final year. Yeah, yeah. And I yeah. was going out with Liz, obviously. So yes, we were living. You were in... off doing a show. You were all graduated, and you were all living together, apart from Claire. Well, and I Claire wasn't was... there for a bit because I was in Africa for ages, and then I came back and. Oh yeah, yeah, you went to Eritrea. Yeah. Then I came back, and they'd they'd rented this house off a weird guy that owned a gym, and we ended up living in this house opposite the gym. And I think, yeah, I think me, Chris. Lou and Liz, Liz and, Li- and Lou lived together and you were there most of the time because you were going out with Liz and we were all doing other stuff and it was a bit frustrating because we got I think we had got the idea that we were called Unlimited and we were this company but nothing was happening because we weren't giving it enough time 
And we all went... So my origin story is that one day we all went to this cafe that used to exist in Hyde Park in Mm -hmm. Leeds. And we had some sort of morning meeting. It was definitely the morning. We were all sat in this cafe and we just said... My my memory of it is that we said, look, are we doing this or not? Let's give up our jobs and try and do this full time. And that, for me, is the moment it started. I agree. And that's my memory. And I think that happened after I'd graduated. I think that was 97 because I was there for that. Kate Toon was there for that. She was was. doing press and marketing for the time. She's now an extremely successful entrepreneur and businesswoman. And author, yeah. In in Australia. But I think that was 97. I think you had a whole year, which which is uh, fondly referred to as the dark year, which was basically living in that house, working bar jobs. Partying a lot. Yes, and all of that. And that's my memory because I was sort of in and out of that going, wow, this is cool, I can't wait to graduate. Because then I I went to London... I had an agent, like three, well, as soon as I graduated, worked out that wasn't for me, came back up to these, told my agent that I was going to, yeah, I'm, it was a really good agent. And I remember going in and giving them some flowers and saying, yeah, I'm, uh, thanks very much, I'm going to Leeds <laughs> to have a company. <laughs> didn't, one, like, didn't they say, what the are, you okay? are you doing? I think, one, I think the mem- my memory of that story <laughs> is that they asked you if you were okay. They at were the worried time, about your mental health. At the time, I was really down with it. I was, like, I, I was so excited. But I do sort of reflect back on that and go, the, the version of me now can see sort of above that scene and see them looking at me really fucking weird. You, you could going, be what? Alan Cummings now, John, well, or someone like that. Well, they were, they were representing Judy Dench and John Hurt and Michael yeah, fucking yeah. Gambon or whatever. And they had this kid in there. But... So yes, Hyde Park Cafe. But I think at the heart of your decision, maybe, and certainly about what we were trying to do at that time, is we didn't care about Judy Dench and John Hurt and all that. We were like, no, we're the enfant terrible. We're (laughs) we're the future. And, you know, looking back, it does seem naive and it seems arrogant, presumptuous. And, oh man, there there was a whole load of stuff around the way the world was and is that we were unaware of but we really did have the energy to like just say no we're doing this and so so yeah that moment but then I think there's after that there were other moments that that could be different origin stories so there's the moment when we got the Prince's Youth Trust business business grant or something which Liz managed now looking at what Liz does now you can see why she did it but she'd spotted this Prince's Youth Business Trust grant or or loan maybe or I think Mm -hmm. we had both and that that meant you know god bless his majesty that meant that we had this this little pot of money that I think got us our first office and our first computer yeah it was paid for the computer and a video camera which was a big part of what Claire was doing at the time, running the LGBT yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, youth group in Leeds and making films with them. And I think just for context as well, I'm sorry to interrupt, but it was you mentioned earlier about, this is 1997, this is the year that after, what was it, the best part of 20 years of Conservative Tory rule, that that was the year that Labour came into power. And it was the year that the National Lottery was created, yes. which is really crucial. And at the time, so unlike people that are trying to set up similar sorts of work as artists now even though it wasn't very much at all we could claim the doll there was 35 was it 35 quid a week and then 35 quid a week housing benefit as well yeah and that paid for what that allowed us to do was literally to live so i'm just thinking we're sat here in your beautiful cozy front room in king's heath in birmingham the fire's going over there but that's a far cry from because we lived together we lived in a house with no furniture and no heating (laughs) 
<laughs> literally nothing. nothing. We had a tin bath in the living room and a, an old which TV. Which was part of a, which was set. Yeah, was and set I slept story. in it a few times, that tin bath. Why did we, I was trying to think on the way here going, we, that house had literally no furniture. It had no furniture. None. And I remember, I remember you, I mean, how do we even communicate then? Did we have, we didn't have mobile phones. Didn't have mobile phones. But, um, I remember getting a call from you going, I've got us a house. No, we went to it together. We did, but did you do the deal? The no, no, we went together. Like, I can't remember. Well, that's a whole other story. Yeah, but yeah. yeah, so yes, that house But the was, landlord took pity on us and went, you, can well, have you haven't this, got anything. I've got this empty Because house. we didn't have anything to put in it. And he went, what, nothing? He said, no, no, we don't own anything. He put some mattresses in for us, right? Literally just, <laughs> it, all that house had in it was a cooker and a mattress on the floor in your room and in my room. That but we was had it. four bedrooms. We it did, was, and we had ended up subletting one to your brother yeah. and one to Tony Singh. <laughs> anyway... But that, uh, but that was sort of the joy of it. But that was only possible because we could get housing benefit and all. And I think I'll get into this yeah, with yeah, probably yeah. Liz a bit more about the deal we set with ourselves about what, how we were going to sort of repay that support. But we couldn't do that now. We couldn't spend the time that we took to develop as a company, I don't think, without that sort of support. And you can't get that support now. You can't get that kind of support. But, like, there was no funding. So it's a different, land- it's a different landscape, isn't it? There's a different... I remember, yeah, I remember being very flirty with the guy who was my... With everyone? The, my, no, with my, the guy that was my case assessor or whatever at the job centre. <laughs> and I remember writing, it was a game, we all did it, like everyone yeah, did yeah. it, Third Angel, every, every company that started around that time played this game. And I remember him go, going in and chatting to this guy about where I was at and he, he signed me on for it. And then I wrote a letter to his boss saying what a model civil servant he was and how he'd been so supportive and everything. So I was like, well, and also you, you scratch could, my back, I'll yeah. scratch yours. But you could, we could be on tour and you could arrange to sign on in a different place mm. at the time as well. So Everyone used to sign on in Edinburgh, didn't they? Yeah, so. yeah. Or so, so, but oh, then, hang on, that's what I wanted to say as well, that you were talking about we weren't bothered about Dench or whatever, but we had been properly inspired by other companies. Yes, we had. So Forced Entertainment. Forced Entertainment, people like us... Like loads. There were loads of companies around in that, that time. Yeah, yeah. That were... Companies. Companies, yeah. Like I don't know if that's the thing now. Like, what was the thing then was you, you met people training, wherever that was, art school, drama school, university. You formed companies. You went out into the world. You did it for nothing for a bit. You hoped that you would get some funding at some point yeah. and you would become a company. And that was sort of the... That was the journey I had in my mind. And in those days, I think they were... I don't even think there was such a thing as an RFO in those days. Which no, is, no, no, there was no... Well... But there might have been... Anyway, but there was a sort of journey that you could see yourself taking. And then, you're right about the Labour landslide in 97 sort of shifted things a bit. Well, massively. But I think the lottery came online in 97, but I think it had been set up... I think it was a Tory thing. I think it was set up by John Major. But it, it didn't, it didn't materialise until 97... But then suddenly the Arts Council had all this money and they didn't know what to do with it. And they released this thing called A for E Express. Do you remember that? No. So it was A for E Express was Arts for Everyone Express. And it was the first... Sure. Yeah. Arts for Everyone. Arts for Everyone Express, it was called. And it was the first bit of open access. But what we would now think of as National Lottery Project Grants, it was the first thing like that. That was, I think that was 97. And it was, it was literally like a postcard. Like you pretty much filled in a postcard, sent it back to you and they gave you five grand. All the grants were for five grand. But at the time when, you, you know, you, you're saying we'd been living on 35 quid a week, no money to make 
shows, suddenly we got five grand to make a show. And I think that's how we made... Did we? And we got five grand to make a show. And I'm trying to think which... That might have been No Brave World. I think that might have been how we made No Brave World with that, with that A3 Express money. And that was, the, that was another origin story because that's what sort of lifted us into a new world where you could start thinking about applying for money to make work and make work and mm. write an evaluation. And, you know, here we are. 30 years, 25, 30 years later, and that's what we do. That's wild, isn't it, that I don't remember that. But then maybe that's because we all had really clearly defined roles. Clearly, my role wasn't involved in talking to Arts Council. But um, you were. We all had job titles, right? Yeah. You were Unlimited's Artistic Director. I was, yeah. Which meant I got to be incredibly anxious for most of the year (laughs) about what on earth we were going to make, trying to get a script out of Chris or Claire... (laughs) And then try and work out a way to make it. What we never had, which is just bizarre now, given what I do for a living now, is what we never had was a producer. Well, I would say, so not at that stage, I agree. But I think what came out was me and Lou becoming producers further down the line. Because what we realised was we're really muddling through here. But initially, we didn't have that role. And that was... A challenge, I think. But yeah, so it fell to it felt like Liz and I were the ones that were talking to the funders. Like Liz yeah, and I yeah. were chatting to initially to the Prince's Trust. Liz and I, I think, arranged that A Free Express grant. Further down the line, Liz and I had that slightly weird relationship with the Training and Enterprise Council, which brought in mm-hmm. like I think there was a wasn't there a training thing we did for about twenty grand or something. Which at the time, see, I remember being in Cornwall or Devon when we got the news that we'd got that grant, and it was um, it was an eclipse. There was well, literally were... an, it was in the, an eclipse, <laughs> and I got told we'd been given twenty thousand pounds, and that seemed at the time like an astronomical sum of money. Well, and it, well, it was. I think. It's important to hold on to and remember what a game-changing amount of money that can be to artists at the beginning of a career in whatever it is you're doing. Yeah. I was also thinking when you talk about um, submitting those Arts Council applications, what I do remember is I think the first one we did, Liz would always put it in the envelope and then she'd make us all kiss the envelope hmm. before it went in the post box. No, that was we later though. To... That was after was A3 it? Express. That oh, was okay. when they'd set up what I think were called um, Grants for the Arts. I think that's what eventually replaced A3 okay. Express. We had an A3 Express a grant. That was like yeah. a really important <laughs> thing. So yeah, so I mean, like, those are, there isn't really a moment. Like any one of yeah. those moments is a very important early moment in our development i i get and i guess and the final one i'd say is like i really really vividly remember annie lloyd giving us our first gig at the lead studio 100 percent. and um when i was a student you know jude kelly had ian mckellen doing his checkoff season at the playhouse and all of that you worked at the playhouse didn't you for a bit behind the bar yeah and and i i sort of didn't find that terribly inspiring although i now see that a lot of the stuff that i thought was old hat and rubbish at the time was actually rather brilliant but um the thing that i found really inspiring and used to just go and see everything there was mm-hmm. what it, annie was doing at what was i think even then called the poly studio but later on became lmu studio oh, yeah, you know, right. okay. um, but i think it was the poly when it when i was first there but anyway that that studio i mean the shows that annie managed to squeeze in there and it was mind-blowing and seeing four stents shows there and all sorts of people there doing incredible work fecund fecund yeah i remember seeing the hidden jet well, no the hidden uh, jay was four cents what was that um fallen angels was yeah a, yeah yeah was third a, angel just before we started as people well, like us like, doing a show yeah. there improbable 
I think I saw an improbable show. I remember there. late as well seeing Frantic Assembly do a show in there yeah, that yeah. literally just didn't fit <laughs> because it was tiny. It was very low. I remember when Annie programmed No Brave World in the LMU studio and paid and I, us and paid us. Yeah, and I remember being in the dressing room and I can't remember which one of us said it, but one of us going, "Fucking hell! Oh my god!" Forced Entertainment have been in this dressing room, and it felt like it felt like wow, we've we've made it. Like you know, we've been paid. I don't know, four hundred quid for doing a show. But it was someone taking us seriously. Was the thing? Yeah, yeah. And also recognizing what that meant. And I've always, I think Annie is uh, an undersung hero of the contemporary performance scene in so many ways. Just the amount that she supported. Yeah, yeah. How much she loved and supported artists, particularly in Leeds. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know, I mean, Annie's always said, I've known Annie for years, I don't see her that often, but I think she's always said to me that that No Brave World was her favourite unlimited show. Really? The way she says it makes me think that she feels like it all went downhill from there. But but it was a huge thing to give us that gig. Yeah. I think it had a bigger impact on how we felt about ourselves than about how we were perceived by others, but it was a massive moment. Yeah. The question was, when did Unlimited start? It was one of them, one of them moments, I think. What I think is also important to recognise, you, you work with Ed Collier now. Yes. Ed was a year below me at university and, and c- came through the workshop theatre. But Ed was really important. When you talk about um, not having a producer, but Ed was like an assistant director to you in those early days. Yeah, was... I think he was officially our sort of, I guess we'd call him a production manager now. But like, yeah, I mean... He like took the, the photos. The, it was fluid. He, he took the photos. He hung you. out with us. He was and still is an amazing friend to me. But also, roles were very fluid. So yes, I was the yeah. artistic director. I was also the guy at like eleven o'clock at night hanging up the set for No Brave World in Battersea Arts Centre with Ed <laughs> up a ladder, cutting like, the top off it because that it didn't fit. Didn't fit. Yeah, that was like it was. We just did what was needed to do. But yeah, Ed was like the guy that drove the van and helped us move stuff around was sort of a production manager, stage manager, but he was also a really important part of that artistic conversation about yes. the work, definitely. Yeah. And his taste and experience. I remember doing a, I remember doing No Brave World in Chelmsford or, no, maybe it wasn't Chelmsford, somewhere like that. And Ed's very elderly aunt and uncle coming to see it. And Ed's, oh, it was Ed's uncle. It was Newcastle. No, no, that was his grandparents. Oh, right, sorry. So Ed's <laughs> uncle, or godfather maybe, was literally M or Q. He was like the head of GCHQ, <laughs> like a proper, like super spy, and brought his wife to see No Brave World and was utterly baffled, like one of those sort of moments where they're going, what on earth is going well, on? Well, it was young, baffling, young right? And it's, I think it's one of the few pure devised shows that we ever really made, because what we learned from that was that it was hard working in that way where you've got six very so one of the things I love about Unlimited as a little sort of bit of backstory is that all of us are firstborns so we're all the eldest of at least two if not three siblings in our families you know I've never clocked that but yes that is true so I think there's something about that that as artists and in whatever profession any of us are working in right now real leaders so devising a show I mean, it was super fun. We were young and all that sort of stuff, but taking ourselves very seriously and making our first professional show. What, do you remember what, you, what was your experience of leading that process? And It was exciting and it was a privilege and it felt like, wow, here we are, we're, we're doing it. We're doing the thing we wanted to do. But honestly, it was, it was really hard because it felt like... 
I was trying to think about this the other day about like what that show was about and it was sort of about it was sort of about us all trying to find a way to justify is maybe the wrong word but kind of find our place in the world and it felt like that's what we were doing as a theatre company as individuals as artists as human beings my god it was naive and blinkered but like it really did feel like we were fighting for our lives making that show. It certainly felt that to me. Like it felt like there was a lot at stake and it felt like this was, am I an artist or not? And what are we saying about the world? And mm. it was also like, I don't know, it was a different time. Like there, I, as you know, John, I, I'd spent years reading way too much Sartre and Camus. So I was like, I didn't even know if I existed really. <laughs> So there was all of that going on. And there was also, in some ways, it felt like it wasn't political work because it, it didn't have a kind of party political affiliation. But because, we'd, because we were that generation that we were five, six years old when Thatcher had come to power. And here we were as 21-year-olds, 22-year-olds making our first show and Tony Blair's just come to power. But everything in between had been the same. And mm. it felt like there'd been this... So it felt like we were that generation that sort of gen x generation we were fully postmodern. we'd rejected we were rejecting stuff all the time weren't we we were endlessly rejecting narratives and things we were told were true we were young but you re we rejected everything and it was like you look down it's like well there's what what there's nothing left like what is there left um I, it felt to me like that show was trying to trying to work that out but on so many levels like who am I as a human being? Who am I as a person? Who are we as a company? Who are we as artists? What are we, why are we here? What are we saying about the world? And that's what that show was. I think it was a really good show. And it was also really weirdly, almost entirely inspired by that weird moment in Look Back in Anger, where mm. with the squirrel and the, is it the squirrel oh, and the bear? Oh, I've forgotten there was a puppet show. Because there was a puppet show in it. Yeah, with briefly. the squirrel and the bear. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, which I remember That's dear old Martin Bannon being very taken with that bit of the show. Yeah. Um, so there was also a like, there was also a really conscious acknowledgement of like, what, what we're talking 90s. So we're talking like 40 years, 50 years of theatre history in mm. there. Like we were quite aware of like, look back in anger, Beckett through the 60s, 70s, then the whole Howard Brenton. Because we'd just been through that at the workshop theatre, we knew our theatre history. We didn't know much, but we knew our theatre <laughs> history. Or we knew a version of our theatre history. So it felt like we were genuinely trying to make sense of the of all of that in that show. That, to me, is what it was about. Thank you for that, because I have a terrible memory and I don't find it very easy to remember those things vividly, but there was, I agree, really hard thinking back now how much each of us were bringing some of our personal traumas to that sense of no bringing up history and uh, authenticity to that the things that people were individually talking about their characters on stage or whatever and then how that came man together. you had louisa giving lethal injections to teddy bears <laughs> weird people pushing weird faces through lycra yeah liz in some crazy red velvet dress oh, yeah. being very odd and flirty with an audience you being grotowski boy Krotowski boy, <laughs> yeah, that was my, well, I suppose, that, I don't know what Thorpe was doing. Thorpe was being exactly the same as he is now. <laughs> yeah. He was being, he was, he, he rewrote John Osborne's 
he rewrote. He those, wrote the puppet G- show, I think. Didn't he, he rewrote Jimmy in uh, Look Back in Anger. Yeah, I can do that better. So that was what was really hard for me, and I have a very, very. I think it was with you a very vivid memory of being in that. So now we're not living, and maybe you and I still were living in the house with no furniture. We were. But Liz and Lou and Ed were living in a house, yeah, another house which did have furniture and was actually seemed quite nice. <laughs> And we were there, we were trying to make the show and we were having a day working on it and it wasn't going anywhere. And everyone had brought all these different things to the show and every, like you say, everyone was working through their own stuff and there was all this material and it was all sort of literally handwritten on bits of paper. And at the back of the house, there was this little cobbled alleyway. I think it was you. And we were kicking a football backwards and forwards in the sunshine. And then it suddenly just came to me and I went, I went, I've got it. And I went back into the house and I put the bits of paper into an order and I sat down with the rest of you and I said, look, this is the order we do the show in. And everyone went, oh my God, yeah, that's it. And that was the show. And I really remember that moment. We'd been wrestling with that material for so long. And then just in that moment of like stopping thinking about it, it suddenly all just fell into place. And it was, it was a good show, I think. We have no record of it, I don't no. think so. There are some photos. We've got a Claire did We've got that amazing set design. Yeah, that was cool. And I really remember being at LMU Studios and the warm-ups. You were very serious about My physical your physical theatre. That's uh, you. That was I'd, your fault. I brought you that Grotowski boy T-shirt, and you were like <laughs> doing uh, an hour long. I mean, you were so. De- it was so good to watch. I absolutely loved it. I would sit and watch you warm up. I absolutely loved it. That dedication to that physical stuff. That I've been. I've been on some weird training thing at Rose Bruford with a Russian theatre director, and I'd learnt all this stuff that we used to do in workshops. And you were really into it. And then you'd go out the back and Chris would, Chris's warm-up would be like eating a pie and smoking a cigarette out the back and that was what he was doing. But that was sort of like, that show felt like everyone had their place in it and everyone mm. came together in that. So that's a really vivid memory. We had a press night in the workshop theatre as well, which was our first... We did. It wasn't a press night. There was no press. No. <laughs> no one's going to come. But we had a party. Here. Well, we had, we invited all our like friends and family to come on that night and... It was like the launch of our first show that we were making together. Yeah, I remember that very clearly. Because someone in was the other sick space. in the front row. It sounds sort of impossibly pretentious to say it. Because it hadn't been at all my upbringing, there was just something about kind of dropping out of the mainstream and deciding to be a bunch of artists together living on nothing living together on very little money and making art that was just impossibly romantic and i love okay that. i'm going to kill the romanticism a little bit because also what when what I, th- I wonder if you're forgetting is in amongst all of this we were deeply practical i have a very vivid memory of a conversation about just want to be in the rehearsal room and liz i think probably saying well yeah but we have to do some other stuff to allow us to create that opportunity, the means to an end. And I think that's... So we were also touring Gilbert and the Goblin. You and I... Oh, man. You were Gilbert. I was the Goblin. There was two teams, Claire and Liz, with the other Gilbert and the Goblin. This is a show that Chris wrote. Uh, in verse. <laughs> which was... About which, your teeth. Yeah, it was about things. health. At the time, the thing for schools was about uh, physical health. 
he had a goblin that appeared. The other end of it is dropping out, because I remember really coming home to that house one night, and it was when uh, League of Gentlemen first series was starting, and we all loved League of Gentlemen because it was very funny, and then we'd come home from doing a day of touring into primary schools, telling kids about their uh, teeth or whatever, and dressing up as a... No, you were Gilbert... Uh, I was wearing a green leotard, which was shared with Liz, who was the goblin in the other team. So you'd always put it on and go, it's still wet. (laughs) And I was dressed as a (laughs) schoolboy. But we'd get home and the League of Gentlemen are on the telly, you know, and they're contemporaries of ours, really. But they've got their own TV show and they've got a sketch about a group of people doing theatre and education. And that was us. Legs Akimbo Theatre yeah. Company. And we'd watch that and go, oh, that's <laughs> us. And they catch... Yeah. So I think it's... We were absolutely doing it in Libby, but I think there's a practicality to what we were doing as well. And we were still doing things like... We were still occasionally doing shifts in bars, I think, and all that sort of stuff. Yeah. But it was about creating the space where we really could really properly dedicate ourselves to the art of it yeah you're right we did we did make that dream come true i remember really i remember having conversations about you could travel quicker on your own but we'll travel further together you know there was Mm. a kind of thing that we'll be together and i think you're right we were resourceful we did like corporate gigs we did schools tours we did weird things for the I remember doing a weird drugs awareness thing for the police in cool. Bradford Town Hall. That's one of my favourite things. Like we projected, did, that was like early days, and we were projecting multimedia. I mate. had my head wrapped in muslin and was half naked in the town hall in Bradford with like the senior leadership policemen. team and police <laughs> and, they were, and Synergy, who were really interested in running nights in clubs yeah. in Leeds, were projecting. Dennis from Synergy was projecting just the word drugs onto my torso, <laughs> and we were playing. <laughs> Um, Lou think. was inside a massive sort of uh, withy fabric cone. I was also half naked as an angel. I had massive you had, you wings. You were an angel. <laughs> Lou was embodying the experience I of coming what, up I on MDMA. What, I wonder what Bradford Police Force <laughs> made of that show, John. I would love to hear anyone go. Do you know, I was there. There, I would love to know that. If you're listening to this podcast and you were you were a young or any kind of policeman in Brad, police person in Bradford at that time, get in touch because holy moly. Another weird thing was Chris and Claire. Sorry, Chris and Liz being in the warehouse, the club. Uh, they were in the private room upstairs dissecting a dead rat. It wasn't. It was me and Liz. Was it you and Liz, not yeah, Chris? Yeah, yeah, okay, no, so it was me. you. So you were the doctor. She was the nurse, and that was being live projected into the dance floor downstairs, where loads of people off their faces were being confronted with a massive live image of Liz someone was a, Liz cutting was a, a rat. Liz open. was a crazy nurse chopping up <laughs> rats, and we used to buy frozen rats from the pet shop because I think people feed them to their snakes, don't they, or something? Mm. But we used to buy frozen rats from the pet shop and defrost them in our house with no furniture and then Liz would chop them up at two in the morning in nightclubs wearing a sexy nurse's outfit. <laughs> but that was, you know, again... That's art. That nice. was art and it, it was also like I'm now having conversations with people about like how you distribute IP from shows on different platforms but that was that because yeah. that, was the, that was the nurse from Shades. Yes, being used in a different medium or on a different platform we wouldn't have thought about it like that but we were taking that character and creating a different platform 
It was sponsored by Vidal Sassoon. We all had Vidal Sassoon haircuts, right? We had directional haircuts. <laughs> hair hair, well, hair by did. Vidal Sassoon. And we would do that in a nightclub. And yeah, like that is... Do you remember as well? We were ahead of our time. We really were. I, I, I genuinely <laughs> were. There was um, that bar, Norman. It was very new at the time, down on the calls. And Chris and Claire were live writing stories about or inspired by people in the bar that were then being projected live as they wrote them onto the walls yeah, yeah, of the yeah. bar. Well, we, when we first did... And that was 98. When we first did um, Static in Edinburgh, text messaging had just been invented and Chris was doing live text writing to people, wasn't he? That was, that was he wrote the script for it, but that was me and Matt Locke, who was at the time at Huddersfield Uni- Art Gallery, subsequently went on to the BBC and then Channel 4 as a commissioning editor. But it was, you could sign up for a text version of the story from Static, uh, which you received daily over two weeks or something on your phone. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that was, when was that? That was late 90s, early noughties? So Static in Edinburgh must have been 99. Nine, yeah. So that is, you know. And that was commissioned by Annie Lloyd at the yeah, Studio yeah. Theatre. That was a long, long way ahead of its time in some ways. So if it was so good, why the fuck did you leave? You uh, well, yeah. So when <laughs> Because you, I was devastated. One of your questions was, what would I have done differently? And I think, uh, I think leaving, I was the first to leave. What was it, 2001? Yeah, it was after Static had had that amazingly successful Edinburgh. Yeah. Now, I absolutely stand by the decision to leave and when I left, because I felt like it was the right thing to do, but I don't think I did it in the right way. I don't really remember. I just felt like I just sort of left. I don't think you did it in a wrong way. But I, I had... I couldn't go back into a rehearsal room because mm. it felt like the way we were running the company... Looking back on it, it feels like maybe it should have felt like an enormous privilege, but it was sort of my job to sit in that office in Air Street and sort of decide, okay, this is what we're going to do. And Chris, you can write it. And like, it felt like the level of energy that I needed to have to be able to take everyone through a process to make a show. Because we didn't have, like now, after that, I went and became a sort of jobbing director and I understood the processes that are basically used in most theatres to make a show and the meeting structures, like the whole process that is making a show. We didn't have any of that. We had literally none of that. So like... Because we had literally no experience. We were no, making, we making, making it all up, up for ourselves. We are literally making it up for ourselves. So it felt like it took so much out of me to hold that space mm. that I honestly felt like I couldn't, I couldn't do it again. And I didn't leave straight away. I said I couldn't do that again. And we tried to find other ways for me to be in the company but not be in that role. Mm-hmm. And I performed in a show that we did at BAC. But that wasn't that just wasn't my thing. And then... Well, getting naked. Getting naked, yeah. <laughs> and we were always naked. And then I... But then I was like, I can't do this for me. Mm. And I also felt like I am not the right person. It would be irresponsible to be at the wheel and take this ship out into a storm again because it felt like that's what we would do we would you know there's that naff metaphor isn't there about you find somewhere new by going off the edge of the map but it really did feel like that's how we made shows we just go off into the storm and find our way and I just didn't feel I could do that again and I didn't think it would be the right thing to do for the team so I gave so I left and then I regretted it almost immediately 
because it was really, I know it was, I know various people in the company were pissed off that I'd left and I totally understand that. But it was a real loss. Like it felt like I was really grieving for it for ages and doing, I did a load of weird TV stuff and... Did a cool film out in the I desert? I did, did a terrible film out in the <laughs> desert. Um, but you had a good but I had, time. But I had some interesting experiences, oh. yeah. But um, I didn't really find what I'd, what I'd cherished most about unlimited was the way we as a group of friends work together i didn't really find that again until i've set up china plate with ed and that's the main oh it's not the main reason i mean like ed is brilliant and china play is brilliant and we we try to do good stuff and all of that but like all that time when i was freelance directing acting i did all that weird i, I was in about a boy as the barman in about a boy like i did some you weird were in shit. an episode of space well maybe that's why i was still Maybe that was still during unlimited time. Um, but yeah, I, like all of that, I was just, I didn't enjoy it really and was missing family, I guess, because like, we were like a family, weren't we? And then I found that again with Ed after Ed, Ed, had been, Ed had gone off and done Lambda and we'd lit, ended up living together in London for a bit. And like after I left Unlimited, I had nowhere to go. I went, literally went to London and slept on Ed's floor for six months. Mm. And then... Yeah, we st- I started to do various things. And then Ed and I had that chance to go and run the hearse together. And here we are. Now we've created... And it was a sort of similar thing. Like, Ed and I worked together at the hearse. And then we were like, oh, this is a good thing. So I did it again. Like, we left there. And we were like, but let's let's carry on doing some of those things together that we like doing. So we set up China Play in order to be able to do that. So it was a similar sort of thing. But yeah, I left because I just, I just couldn't see a way of leading a process again. I think there's a bunch of really interesting things in here. First thing I want to say is I don't know I don't know of anyone being pissed off with you, at all. I think maybe in the moment, and at the time because it's not what we all, including yourself, actually wanted, and we tried to make it work, and processes make it difficult. By that stage, we'd been out of union making stuff together in a very intense way for what three, four years, something like that. Yeah. And I really hear now in particular that thing about the pressure of that leadership role and we did look to you to lead those processes and to come up with the ideas the plans the way of working that we would just turn up and go it's all right we don't know what we're doing today Paul will Paul run knows. an amaz- amazing mind-blowing workshop exactly <laughs> but you would put the amount of work that I really know that you would put into creating devising those workshops the amount of time that that took but also it's exhausting. And you look at, there's a lot of talk at the moment about shared leadership models and we've evolved into a version of that at Unlimited in a way that's very different, very similar, six artists as we set up, but very different in terms of the shared responsibilities of that actually. So I'm sorry that, I don't think I really truly understood, we said before we, I think, started pressing record, we've not talked about it in this way, that that was one so hard an experience for you which I think we in part understood but also that you weren't able to find we weren't able to find a way for you to really offload some of that and for us to share more of it as well yeah I think we did we did try didn't we we did we did look at a different sort of model and uh I took some time out and I went to Venezuela to find yourself like yeah, static. not not to find myself, <laughs> but just to get a bit of a break. I mean, again, this is going to sound really weird, but I had this weird moment of clarity in a c- 
canoe going down the Orinoco River. That's <laughs> just such a wonky thing to it's say. It's either the, gil- the, the, the alley in Leeds or the, yeah. a river in So I was, I was sat at the front of this, I guess it was a canoe raft thing, going, I'd, we'd been in the jungle for New Year's Eve and uh, I was coming back to, I can't remember where I was going back to. Anyway, I, I'd been on this winter break somewhere and I was coming down the river and just sat in this boat and I was thinking about coming back to Leeds and trying to make another show and I just remember thinking no the thing the best thing here is for me to to leave and say I can't I can't do this anymore it'd be better for me and it'll be better for everyone else and it was because Unlimited went on to be amazing and to do amazing things under your leadership and like we it, it felt like a good time if I'm honest it also felt like a good time because we'd We'd gone to Edinburgh for the first time the year before. We'd won a Fringe First for the first time. We'd had all those five-star reviews. We'd had that sellout show. So in some ways, it felt like the company was there. We'd, we'd achieved, I'd achieved the things that I'd, in my very limited view of what being a theatre company meant, you know, going to Edinburgh, getting a nice review off Lynn Gardner, winning a Fringe First, like all of that stuff that you feel felt was important. We'd just done it. And it felt like that's the moment to step away while we're on that high and um, and try and do something else. It was definitely the right thing for you. The right thing for the company, I don't know. It, it's just a different thing for the company. But I think it speaks to how difficult it is, actually. To... I did come back, though, once after that. I came back as an actor and we did um, Swing Left. Oh, yes. Which I really loved. So that, that, for me, was like a really healing experience because I came back... Then I think... That was a proper play as well. Yeah, and Steve, like it was so nice to be in an unlimited process where I didn't have to lead it. Mm. And I was just acting, doing a show. We'd had had quite a cool... We'd had a really cool time of it in that workshop thing we'd done in Harrogate Theatre where we'd sort of devised it with Steve Dykes. And then he went away and wrote this play, which I thought was actually quite good. Unlimited did it twice, didn't we? Really clever, really interesting look at 1997 through the lens of 1945. I thought that was all brilliant. And I came back and it was joyful. I just, I remember staying with you guys. Me and you used to run in in the mornings, Mm -hmm. do rehearsals all day, dancing with Claire, dancing with Liz, acting with you and with Chris. We learnt to Lindy Hop. We learnt to Lindy Hop. We did a good show, Mm. you know, and people loved that show. Uh, And weirdly, years later, my current life partner Sarah was in that show yes in the second in version. the second version of it yeah yeah but that was like that was a really nice thing because it felt like and maybe we maybe my timeline is out maybe we did the R&D at Harrogate Theatre with Steve before I left and that's yeah, why sure I came did. back to be in the show yeah. but that was like a nice way to come back and to be making work together again as a mm. group well it's not like we haven't continued to make things all... When you were just talking about coming back and going and running in together, I think that was it for me. It's like we'd lived together by that stage for years. Yeah, years. With varying other people as well. But I'd lost my... <laughs> I'd lost my partner. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and you've yeah. gone off. Um, it was... Um, look, fork in the road moment. You make... You have to make a call But sometimes. we've all stayed in... It's, that's what I was... Sorry, that's what I was saying. I said, that it's not like we never spoke to each other from that no, moment. No, no, so no. We all stayed in intimate contact. And it was slightly... I think the honesty of it, it was slightly awkward for a bit because it's like, well, we're the... 
we're the gang, we're the six, that's what everyone knows us as as well. And now, what's happened to Paul? We, none of us have, it's 2023 and we've only just started speaking about it. Yeah, yeah. Um, all of that sort of thing is another thing to add to this sort of, in another conversation, again, probably with Liz as the sort of company manager figure. There was a structure in place that I think a lot of other companies don't have for, we had a notice period. We had an agreed notice period with each other. And that's why I think, you know, you, you didn't leave immediately. It was quite long in its sort of planning, is my recollection. Maybe it wasn't. Maybe. I think, I think, so that's interesting that that's your memory of it. My memory of it is you being quite cross because I didn't honour the notice period. Oh, maybe that's what you did do. <laughs> you fucker. But I don't know. I had that job because... <laughs> oh, you I, had to go in, you, you had the offer for the film. Film, yeah, yeah, yeah so yeah. I went off to do the film. But I had to earn a living because, like, also I'd lost... I'd not just lost my job. I'd lost my friendship group. I'd lost my home. So would I. I know, but I left. I'd lost I, my Saturday morning you, trips yeah, to Morrison's and the had market. You still had Liz. <laughs> As I was... Yeah, I had to find a way to make a new yes. life somewhere else. And it but was... I, think that's, I did it in, in my land. <laughs> but it's really worked out. And I think that's what I mean. It's about it's the right decision for you. And you said you described it as the wrong feeling like it was the right decision for the company. It's just a decision, isn't it? And I think increasingly what I'm speaking about with the people that make up the company now is, look, no one's dying here. No. You know, it might feel difficult, but, you know, this is really manageable. We can get through this. The point at which someone's literally dying or really ill and we need to support them, then we'll do that. And we're all still really good friends. And you've worked with most of us, again, in different contexts. Yeah, yeah. All of us. Right? Everyone. And you're still intimately involved in producing Chris's work. Yeah, yeah. Well, Chris most and Ed, of course. Yeah. But, yeah, I mean, we, we've worked, yeah, we've all worked together in one way or another. Yeah, or yeah. we've hung out together. Yeah, but, I mean, it was such a profound experience. I don't think it could have been in any other way, really. Unless there'd been, like, a terrible falling out, like a kind of... Bill Gaskell, Max Stafford-Clark falling out, which, which almost sort of then defines the rest of your career. Yeah, yeah. But I think that's there were definitely uh, flashpoints for all of us in our personal relationships and intensified by what we were doing, but it was never the case that permanently damaged anything. We were all two good friends. We knew each other too well. Yeah, I mean, and Jesus Christ, think about... I mean, talk about a lack of work-life balance. Like, our, <laughs> our lives were just... That was it. Yeah. It was just, we lived, as you said, we lived together, we worked together, we made art together, we toured together. It was everything. It was literally everything. Um, it was cool. It was cool. It, I wouldn't change it for the world. I thought it was, a, it was an amazing thing to have done. So what is the one thing you learned specifically from your experience of setting up or working with Unlimited that you would offer as advice to anyone thinking of or in the early stages of setting up their own company now? Do it. Hmm. I think the... So recently, I did a little guest lecture thing at a university. And there were a group of... I can't remember if they were second year or third year students in a room with me. And this particular university had, a few years ago, uh, had a very fruitful period. A bit like Leeds back then. It, it isn't Leeds. Had pumped out a bunch of theatre companies who'd been quite successful They'd gone to Edinburgh, big, big load of hoo-ha about it and like, oh my God, what's happening at this university? They're producing all these amazing companies. And one of those shows has just gone into the West End. I don't think the company's gone into West End, I think it's the writer. And I was, do it wasn't me who asked the question, I was in, the t in there to talk to them about something else. But the, the lecturer said, oh, we always start off 
the sessions with a look at the stage newspaper. That's the course reading. So one of the big stories in the stage that week had been this show, Lemons, 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 going into the West End. And um, he said to the group, how does that make you feel? And I was astonished by the response from that room full of students who basically were like saying, we could never do that. It makes me feel really frightened. It makes me feel really anxious because I'm not good enough. Because And I was like, I was really astonished by that. Almost every, there was one American student in the group who was like, guys, we can do whatever we want. But the, amongst the British students who were from a range of different backgrounds, there was this profound sense that it wasn't possible. And so I sort of spent the rest of my time with them trying to say it's possible like it's not easy nothing's easy but it's possible like there's nothing to stop you being that story like that is what I did I, I'm living proof that that is possible and we did it in an environment where yes there was the dole and housing benefit but there wasn't national lottery project grants. like literally any of you could apply for a national lottery project grant tomorrow to make art and you could get a grant and make it happen like you could do that you could literally do that tomorrow and you're lucky because there isn't a funding system like that, to my knowledge, anywhere else in the world where there is that amount of readily accessible project money for any, literally anyone. You don't need to be a company. You don't need to be, you don't need to have a qualification. And so, so I guess that's, that's the thing for me is like, we didn't quite know. We didn't know what we, we didn't know what the fuck we were doing. <laughs> we really didn't know what we were doing. But the thing we had going for us was that we were going to do it. And we just said, yeah, fuck it. Let's do it. And we did it. And I get it. I understand. People will say, oh, but it's different now. And like, it, it was hard then. It was really hard then. It's hard now. It was probably hard 20 years before we did it. It's always hard, but it's possible. And that's the thing is like, you've just got to want it. You just got to say to yourself, I'm going to do it. I'm going to make it happen. And you can make it happen. Yeah. So that's the thing. I feel like had we been in that room, we'd have been coming out with all sorts of arrogant shit about why that show was fucking terrible and why we wouldn't make up like that. And we'd have been completely missing the point. We'd have been utterly misguided and arrogant and pig-headed because we were terribly like that. But we'd have been saying, no, we're going to do that. We're going to do it better. <laughs> That's, that would have been us, right? And I, yeah, so that, that was, is my thing. It's like, it's possible. Do it. Do it. Just do it. And, and if you don't feel like that, it won't happen. Like Ed and I talk all the time. And about, at that stage, don't do it. If you don't well, want it, and you don't really, but you want have to it, do it. Like this is a yeah, thing Ed and I it. say. Like there's when we do our optimist training course, it's like yeah, there's lots of good ideas in the pub about what would make a great show, and they just stay in the pub. Someone's got to do something. Someone's got to talk to someone. Someone's got to try and take responsibility for making it happen. And if you do that, we we not everything we did was a success. Like we've no. we've touched on some great shows. There were some. Terrible Stinkers. shows as well. At least one. Well, there was... There's one we don't talk about. There's one we don't talk about. Two. Uh, there were was, there was some bad shows as well. We didn't always get it right. No one gets it right all the time. But we did it. it. It wasn't that we knew what we were doing. It wasn't that we had more support. You could say we may have had a different kind of privilege to some people have now, but I feel like we were also disadvantaged in different ways back then because of the way the industry was and the funding systems were well we had the support of each other and we I had think each that's other and we it's just like... had the nerve to say let's let's go let's do it let's do it and see what happens well when you've got five other people around you 
saying that, yes, we can. It, it means that on a, the occasions where you are the one going, I really don't think we can, you've got five other people pulling you together. One of my favourite things that I remember another artist saying was, the thing that I love about you lot is the way that you're always united you always sort of come out you're always together and i always loved that because we would have we talk about the company screensaver on our own we'd be quiet we might argue we might have those things but once we got out there you present unified and that's a really powerful thing I think. yeah yeah a few of these people have been mentioned but it's worth like it's easy to focus on the six of us right but there was Ed there was Deb there was Pam there was Tim Skelly Mm -hmm. there was all the team really at the workshop theatre Richard Boone there were all those people that supported us Jane Plasto partners uh, family friends all of those guys yes absolutely but there were there were people who were who were in the trenches with us like Mm. literally driving the vans making the show happen Annie Lloyd you know there were people who were Part, they were on the team in a yeah, different yeah, yeah. sort of way who really should be acknowledged, I think. <laughs> I probably, I've probably not remembered them all. Um, well, it's difficult. I've been trying to do this myself, but there's so many people that have been part of this. I think that's why I'm really excited about I hope that I've reached out to as many of those that should have, bringing everyone together in September. If you could do it again, would you do it again? I certainly would. I mean, I absolutely would. And I feel like, oh God, it was fun. It's been a ride. It really was a really great ride, I think. Yeah. Um, and I think I learned a lot. I think I learned a lot about uh, turning up, and doing it, and doing the thing you said you were going to do. Um, what are you going to do at the finale? I did ask Chris if he'd got a record of his practical essay. I want him to restage it. I know. I did say to Chris, come on, mate, should we do your practical essay? <laughs> But he says there's no written record of it. So I think not. it's got to be purely from memory and collected memories of everyone else. And there's got to be more to it than the him only, just pissing in a bucket. The only thing anyone remembers about it is him <laughs> pissing in a bucket. But I remember there being quite a good <clears throat> script. And I remember he and I spending ages doing a load of... like leaping. We did quite a complicated... It wasn't really physical theatre, but there was some sort of game we were playing where we would have to do like... It press, was press ups and star jumps and speak. It and was like it was like ridiculousness crossed with the Sleaford mods is my <laughs> recollection. Someone described we, it as like the Dangerous Brothers, you know, Rick <laughs> and Aid Edmondson. That was yeah, someone yeah. Expre- expressed it was a bit like that once. But yeah, I did think about doing that. Cool. I tell you what, I would say to everyone, thank you because it was thanks for the for the friendship, for mm. the for the support, for the. Just the sheer joy of doing that together when you're 19, 20, 21, 22, having that ride and having the, whenever that origin moment was, when we all got on the, when we all got on the boat, we did all do it for a bit. And that was a really cool thing to have done. Yeah. And one of those things you can look back on in old age and go, yeah, I'm glad we did that. (laughs) I wholeheartedly agree, Paulie. Yeah. Thank you. I really enjoyed having that conversation. I hope you enjoyed listening to it. Thank you for being here and for listening. In the next episode, I'll be speaking with my co-founder and dear friend, Louisa Ashley, about her most vivid memories of her time with Unlimited. 
If you have any questions or comments you'd like to share, please get in touch on Instagram, Facebook, or if you really must, Twitter, where Unlimited is at untheatre on all of them. Or email me on j, just the letter j, at unlimited.earth. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jay Spooner. Editing and sound design is by Oliver Spooner. The intro and underscore music you heard at the beginning and during my conversation with Paul was composed and recorded by David Edwards, a.k.a. Minotaur Shock, for Unlimited's 2009 production, The Moon, The Moon. The track you're listening to right now is called Sex Motives, also written and recorded by David Edwards, for a scene in our 2013 show, The Noise, to underscore the introductory monologue of a character called The Agent, who says... I have got better fucking things to do at this stage in my career. Uh, the yacht? Yeah, she's 64 feet. Bernice. Me? Benjamin Smith. Ben. You know, like the 19th century explorer. I suppose I've always identified with him. You haven't heard of him. Don't worry, nobody ever has. Discovered a lot of the high Arctic islands. Other end of the world from here, of course. Yeah, had a plastics firm. Sold up two years ago. Wife died. Thought I'd buy a boat. <laughs> I guess you could call me a wanderer. Jesus, even I hate this fucking guy. I'm going to come down on you like a ton of bricks for not getting in touch, you fucking real-life Fargo fuck. But most of all, I am going to make you regret making me be this guy. And Christ, this fucking constant noise isn't helping. You can listen to an EP of all the music from The Noise on Unlimited Theatre's Spotify channel, and there's a full script and film of that 2013 production on the project page at Unlimited's website, unlimited.earth forward slash project forward slash the hyphen noise. (laughs) 